You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2024 on Monaco Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's programme, did Ukraine shoot down a plane carrying its own prisoners? Or did Russia put them up to it? We'll have the latest on a bizarrely awful tragedy on the Russian border. After that... Thousands of Argentinians went on strike and protested against their newly elected president's radical agenda. We'll explore who's in the right. We'll also be bringing you business news and a curious food fight between two restaurants in India. And then it is Thursday, Global Countdown Day. Fernando, where are we heading? Bom dia, Chris. We're heading to my home country, Brazil, and I'm looking at my country's charts. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. Contacts between warring nations are always going to be tricky, and yesterday it seems the communication breakdown between Russia and Ukraine may have been complete. An attempted prisoner of war exchange went wrong when a Russian plane, carrying some 64 Ukrainian prisoners of war, crashed near the border. Russia blames Ukraine, and Ukraine has not denied that it may be responsible, but it has blamed Russia for not ordering the airspace to be safeguarded, as it had done with such exchanges in the past. Well, James Rogers is a reader in international journalism at City University of London and the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. James, thanks for coming on. I mean, this is such an awful story, frankly. What is your sense of what happened? Well, Chris, I mean, I think there are very few hard facts that we can rely on here. What does seem to be the case is that this plane was shot down. And as you rightly pointed out in your introduction, Ukraine has not denied that. And given that more than 24 hours have now elapsed since the incident, uh, one has to assume that that part, at least the Russian version of events, uh, is probably correct. Beyond that, it's much harder to determine what happened. Um, Yes, um, there have been previous prisoner exchanges during which we understand This coordination happened to ensure that um, the airspace was considered as safe. Um, We don't know for certain who was on board. We do know that Russia is saying that those prisoners were on board, but we only have their word for it. And honestly, given that many states lie in time of war, and particularly given that the Kremlin has not got a great um, record of being direct with its uh, dealings with the international media and international diplomacy, uh, particularly during this last war, it's, it's difficult to take that at face value. It may be true. We honestly don't know. Yeah, no, it's a fair point with, with these things. I mean, do you have any sense of sort of whether you, what Ukraine is saying on this as well? I mean, President Zelensky is demanding answers. Do we, do we even know that there sort of was supposed to be a prisoner uh, of war exchange, which is now presumably not happening, even if it's not clear exactly who was on that plane? And what would be kind of common practice for that kind of prisoner exchange? Well, the, the, it does seem that there was one scheduled um, for yesterday. Uh, and it seems from you know media reports uh, of previous similar exchanges, and this is quite normal. I mean, it, it seems curious to some of us outsiders sometimes, but obviously, even during wartime, 
um, warring nations do have to have some form of communication with each other. If we think, for example, of the very high profile visits which have been made to Kiev and other parts of Ukraine, but Kiev in particular by Western leaders, um, there will have been a degree of co coordination there when the Western country in question will have made it clear to the Kremlin saying, you know, our president, our prime minister is coming today, you know, make sure that there are no strikes at this time. This is the aircraft and so on, because however, whatever Russia as antagonism to the West is and however much Ukraine wants to gain, regain its territory, something of that nature, of course, would be utterly disastrous. So there, there are forms of coordination. And that seems to be the case with these prisoner exchanges. Something clearly yesterday went desperately wrong. Um, I think, you know, reading between the lines of President Zelensky and other reports coming out of Ukraine, it seems that they feel the Russians didn't keep their side of the deal, perhaps because they wanted uh, this to happen. Um, I, you'll notice that Ukrainian military intelligence has been quoted by the Reuters news agency as describing this as a planned action to destabilize the situation in Ukraine. Well, I, I think to that point, James, I mean, it's obviously hard to say, but but would Russia be motivated to tempt Ukraine like that? I mean, does anyone really gain from something like this happening, given, you know, something, as you say, these are regular contacts that happen between warring nations. Does either side really want prisoner of war exchanges to completely end, as they may now do, if this was indeed something that Russia kind of goaded Ukraine into doing? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that one would imagine now there will be a pause in these things until a new thing can be found out. It is interesting, though, Chris, to look at the way that Russia has responded to this. Nearly all the official Russian reaction from defence ministry, from the Speaker of the Parliament, has emphasised the fact that Russia says that this was shot down by a German or American manufactured missile. Mm. So in other words, this plays into a domestic narrative uh, in which Russia is not trying to take large chunks of Ukraine, but rather that Russia is at war with the West. And this is something that has been done by a Western weapon. Um, it's also, of course, not impossible that those names of prisoners who are supposed to have been on this plane may have died in other ways. They may have died in Russian custody. We don't know. And this may, in a deeply cynical way, um, be a means that the Russians can say, well, actually, you know, they didn't die in custody. They were killed in this explosion. That is something which we will probably never know. Fair enough. And just uh, finally, James, just in general, I'm curious if you could kind of talk about what the general state of contact is between Russia and Ukraine in your understanding. I mean, presumably, as we've said, sort of prisoner of war exchanges are a kind of very first step, even when, when two parties are at war. But perhaps, you know, sometimes these first steps can be what then moves them towards peace talks or something else. Presumably, perhaps all of that will stop now. Yeah, I mean, I don't, there's been very, I mean, really, of the last two years since the war was escalated in February 2022, there's been very little um, in terms of diplomatic process. You'll, you might remember, Chris, there were talks there in Istanbul in the very early stages of Russia's large scale military operation. But since then, there's really been no diplomatic process at all. So, um, and I think particularly uh, it's one of those conflicts where it's very hard to see that changing while the two leaders remain in power. I can't really ever foresee the day in which Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky would sit across the table from each other under, under any circumstances. So I'm afraid that looks like that's an awful long way off. This, though, of course, um, for nations who are both at war and, and populations who are largely demoralized, it is something that's mutually beneficial. So the prisoner exchanges obviously can also help to raise morale on both sides. And even though 
um, one side doesn't want to help their enemy, they can see there's a benefit in it for themselves. So one would imagine that these would resume, but it might probably not for a while until, uh, you know, the immediate aftermath of this has died down and more secure means of communication can be re-established. Yeah, we'll definitely be following how that continues. Thanks very much, James. That was James Rogers. Now, here is Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. Israel has denied striking a UN facility in Gaza on Thursday, killing at least nine people. 800 people had been sheltering in the building. Israeli forces are pushing further into southern Gaza's biggest city and have surrounded two major hospitals. Australian police are investigating after a statue of Captain James Cook was cut down and a monument of Queen Victoria graffitied. The overnight vandalism in Melbourne happened a day before Australia Day, a controversial national holiday which marks the arrival of British colonizers in the country. And Japan is now the fifth nation to have landed an aircraft on the moon after its unmanned lunar lander touched down on Thursday. But problems with the craft's solar batteries led the Japanese space agency to power it down. They say it could recover and go on to gather data if the sun's angle changes. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Laura. Now, Argentina is desperate for answers after years of a failing economy and spiraling inflation. Even so, the country's new president, Javier Millet, was always going to have a bumpy ride implementing a radical libertarian agenda to get the country back on track. Well, yesterday he faced his biggest test yet as opponents staged a nationwide strike and protest with businesses and schools closing across the country. Andrew Thompson is a journalist and political risk analyst specializing in Latin America, formerly in Argentina. He was also previously a foreign correspondent in Argentina. Andrew, first of all, just tell us how big were these protests? How big was the strike? Was there kind of an impact on the already failing economy from this? Um, According to the government, there was about $1.5 billion worth of losses as a result of a 12-hour general strike, which was held yesterday on Monday. However, if you look at historical precedent, this wasn't support for the strike, uh, wasn't massive. Uh, We're in the middle of the summer holidays in Argentina. Things are a bit slow anyway. But yesterday was pretty much a normal day with some a lot of flights cancelled. But um, public transport was continued to operate, not least because the labor unions wanted to be able to get their supporters to rally in central Buenos Aires, and you need buses to do that. Um, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate. The government claims only 40,000 people attended uh, a mass rally in, in front of Congress in Buenos Aires. Uh, the organizers said the figure is closer to 600,000. Um, I think what we can say, although there's a, a lot of debate on numbers, it was a sort of medium successful general strike by Argentine standards. So medium success. I mean, d- then I guess the question is, is medium success enough? Is there any sense of whether these protests will succeed in any way in in impacting the president and his policies? Um, that's a really difficult question to answer. At the moment, everything is still in play. Um, the President Millet has basically come up with almost a thousand urgent deregulation measures, and he is pushing for them through a Congress where he doesn't have a majority. So it looks fairly certain a a vote on some of those measures is probably going to happen next week. 
Um, it looks certain that the government won't get all that it wants, but it has asked for so much, partly because it knows it won't get all that it wants. Um, so there's a kind of game going on over what's in and what's out. The government, the new president says he is categorically not negotiating, but he is open to suggestions, which seems to be a roundabout way of saying he will make some concessions. Uh, but that's still not clear. Of course, the trade unions, they have a lot at stake because their negotiating power would be radically reduced as part of this kind of mass, uh, massive deregulation that the government is, is arguing for. Well, and as you say, uh, thousands of measures, I just wonder if you could kind of hone in on a couple of specific ones, or I'm just curious if there was a any particular trigger, if you will, for these protests, the privatization of companies, presidential powers expansion, rolling back of labor rights. I mean, is it just everything or is there particular ones that the president is going to stick to that the protesters don't want? Um, I think that uh, it is a sort of everything is in for the moment. There have been some changes. The, um, the, de there's a, de a decree of presidential necessity and urgency, uh, which, for example, enables pretty much all state companies to be privatized, but it's already clear that the state oil company will probably not be privatized. And among all the measures, I think the ones that are most important to the government are those that reduce Argentina's massive fiscal deficit, because the president believes that it's the deficit that and the printing of money to cover that deficit, which is, if you like, the core uh, illness in Argentina. And he must tackle that uh, by cutting back government spending. So one way of assessing is he making any progress will be at some point ne next week, has he got approval for any of the decrees and laws that actually reduce um, the fiscal deficit in a meaningful way? Mm, and he has, he has gotten a sort of tacit backing from the International Monetary Fund on some of that, which, of course, has its own difficult history in Argentina. I just wonder, given all of that, I suppose, it is fair to say at this point that really all politicians and economists, left and right, have failed Argentina up to this point. Did Argentinians really know what they were voting for and getting into with this president? And is there any kind of consensus that could come out of all of this? I think there is uh, absolute knowledge in the Argentine electorate that things are rotten and something needs to be done. The problem, however, is what you might call sort of not in my backyard. So there are a lot of people who will say, I am against wasteful spending, I am against, you know, corrupt trade unions, all that needs to be stopped and cut back. But then you say, oh, and as part of those things, we are reducing your pension or we are making you redundant because you work in a state company, then the attitude changes quite radically, understandably so. So this, in a sense, the, the real kind of dilemma is Millet won the elections late last year with 55% of the vote. So he does clearly have a democratic mandate. On the other hand, there is a large group, maybe 40% of the voters, who do not share his vision and are prepared to go on strike and protest against and protest against what he sees as the solution to Argentina's problems. No doubt a challenge that will continue. Andrew Thompson, thank you very much for that. You are listening to the briefing on Monocle Radio.
Time now to get the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Ewan, first story is not really going to necessarily be a surprise to anyone. Elon Musk is failing to work his magic with Tesla's Tesla's investors. Hi, Chris. Yeah, Tesla stock dropping as much as 8% today in early trading. It is corporate earnings season and Tesla's numbers have fallen short of estimates. Though in fairness, not much short of estimates. Revenues came in at $25 billion. Analysts were looking for $26 billion. But I think the worry for investors is that perhaps the company is moving beyond its youth, its period of rocketing growth. Uh, the company's previously guided that it will grow by 50% of year. That, of course, cannot go on forever. Last year, they managed 38%. That's a, a number which many companies will be pretty pleased with. Uh, but analysts are predicting an increase of uh, 20% for this year. Now, the issue for Tesla is that the company has really quite a small range of relatively expensive cars. And the worry, I think, for investors is that the supply of people who want one of these cars is starting to dry up. Perhaps most people who would like a Tesla have bought one now. Uh, and many of the people who would like one uh, but can't afford one, well, they can't buy one. Well, Musk did try to address this point. He did his very bullish best on the investor call to suggest that this will be a temporary phase in the growth story. Tesla's going to build its next cheaper uh, next generation vehicle at its factory in Texas uh, and then later in Mexico. That's going to start as soon as the second half of next year. He did warn that it would be uh, difficult producing this car. Of course, he's had production difficulties in the past, but he does say that the next growth period for Tesla is coming up. But for now, Tesla is still the world's most valuable car maker. It's worth $660 billion on the New York stock market. Toyota, which is, of course, the world's biggest car producer, produces far more cars than Tesla, is worth almost exactly half of that, $330 billion. You and just to follow up on that quickly, I mean, you, you mentioned Musk's bullish projections there. I mean, what is the sense of whether investors really trust Elon Musk at this point when he does give these these bullish estimates? <laughs> Well, he's, uh, as, yeah, as you say, he's he's really a bit of a wild card, but a lot of investors uh, have a lot of faith in Elon Musk. I know opinion of him is is mixed uh, elsewhere, but the shares are really, really expensive. So people are buying these shares. They have come down uh, a fair bit uh, from their peak, and they are a, a bit of a roller coaster ride. The the EV market, of course, around the world is, is growing quite rapidly. It's still a relatively small part of the global uh, car market. Interesting that uh, Elon Musk also flagged the threat from China. BYD recently overtook Tesla. It's perhaps a name that many people haven't heard of, but BYD is now the world's biggest maker of electric vehicles. Uh, and he says that it's not just BYD. There are other Chinese competitors uh, who Musk warned that without uh, trade barriers, he said, will we'll take over the world's market for electric vehicles. So the Chinese are really stealing a march on electric vehicles. Uh, and it's something which Tesla worried about. And it's something which the legacy manufacturers really need to keep an eye on as well. Well, and you and just quickly to take one other story from where you are in Dubai. Dubai is kind of moving with the times on plastic waste. Yeah, as of January 1st, Dubai has joined the ranks of countries and territories banning single-use plastic bags. Now, the ban, which is pretty comprehensive, is pretty similar to those bans in place uh, around the world. But uh, I'll be reading a rather depressing piece by one of our Bloomberg Opinion columnists today that concludes that at best, these bans achieve, on balance, nothing. And in many cases, they actually make the situation worse. Old-style disposable bags typically made of thin polyethylene, have been displaced in most stores uh, by thicker reusable bags uh, and natural fibres such as uh, cotton or jute. And of course, uh, an individual disposable bag 
it's far less damaging in terms of carbon uh, and other pollution and water usage than these thicker bags. Uh, there was a Danish study uh, by the Danish government uh, in 2018, widely quoted, which says that a reusable bag needs to be uh, used 52 times before its impact drops below that of a disposable one. And cotton, unfortunately, uh, is even worse. So the problem is we are taking just far too many of these reusable bags uh, and not reusing them. Mm, you and Potts, many thanks for joining us from Dubai. The briefing is continuing on Monocle Radio. Now here at Monocle, we do love our culinary heritage fights, especially between countries over the creation of particular dishes. Don't get me started on a fight between Bavaria and Austria over Mozart chocolates. Today, we are bringing you one from within a country, though, as two restaurant chains in India are in a court battle over who invented butter chicken. Well, our New Delhi correspondent, Lindy Prickett, has all the juicy details, pun absolutely intended there. Lindy, tell us about the combatants. Oh, well, it is a story that goes way, way back. Um, you know, it's funny because it's it's one of those things that if you were to ask somebody what their spaghetti bolognese recipe is, every family probably, even in Bologna, has a different version of this dish that probably goes back centuries. And that's really no different with butter chicken. Uh, that is, however, until this court case came up and people are placing times and dates to it. It is well known that butter chicken and dal makan or dal makani, which means butter, so dal, dal with lots of butter. They're both known as Northwest Frontier Province food. And the main city in the NWFP is Peshawar, which is now in Pakistan up near the Afghan border. But this story goes back to British rule when there was no Pakistan. The Moti Mahal story goes, because there's two versions of this story, that Kundanlal Gujral created butter chicken curry in the 1930s when he first opened a restaurant in Peshawar. And that's why he lays claim to it. But that is not the story that a rival restaurant that only opened a few years ago, I might add, has. Their story is completely different. Should I go on and tell you about the other story? You can. Well, as I understand, okay. it's partly that this is the children, if you will, of a co-creator who are laying claim to the dish, saying that their, I believe, is it grandfather or father that sort of <laughs> helped create this dish, but a yes, different date. That, I mean, it gets very confusing. That, it does. It does get confusing. So, so Moti Mahal, the the restaurant, which is an institution here in Delhi, which has been around so long that even the likes of Richard Nixon and Jawaharlal Nehru have been to this restaurant, they claim it started, as I say, in Peshawar. But apparently, according to another family, the Diagon story is different. They say that they helped open the restaurant in 1947, Moti Mahal restaurant, that their long lost family, not long lost, but past um, um, since um, um, deceased family member, Kundan Lal Jagi, that had, he had partnered with Gujral when he opened Moti Mahal. So he says, or his, his ancestors, his relatives say, hey, he was in the kitchen at the same time the dish was invented. And that gives them the right to also lay claim to being creator of this dish. Now, Lindy, there is a Two, as I as I read here, there is a two thousand seven hundred and fifty two page court filing on this. I mean, I'm not expecting to have read all of that, but is that a normal amount for a court case? 
<laughs> well, it is in a court case in a country like India that goes back. So that this is a story that goes back so far and goes back, as I say, when there were different rulers and different jurisdictions. And, you know, maybe there's even a recipe or two thrown in there. Uh, I think the reason why the um, the, the case is, is so thick is they've had to compile so many different um, uh, claim um, um, stories, and they're trying. It's very hard to say when this first came about. So there's a lot of different testimonies in there, um, and a, lo a lot of passion as well has gone into this uh, particular court case. So it is it is a recipe uh, um, for a lot of of masala and interest here. So a, a court filing that is both history and legal filing at the same time. I mean, just just one other thing, Lindy. I mean, is there kind of a soft power aspect to this, I wonder. I've done a few stories on kind of culinary diplomacy over the last year. How how big is butter, chicken, and curry for India in general? Does the winning restaurant, the winning, the court case winner get the spoils, if you will, from this? Well, I think the court case alone is getting a lot of interest. So I, I'm 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 a little tempted to wonder how much of a PR interest is is there is in this particular story. Um, you ask about how popular butter chicken is. You know, it's one of those things that's at pretty much every Indian wedding in the north of the country, where there's a lot of Punjabis and, as I say, people from the northwest frontier province or their relatives. It's not so ubiquitous down south, but it's not to say that people don't like it or love it. But really it's actually a little bit on the non-spicy side. So it's it's not necessarily the staple household meal like you might think. But in terms of culinary diplomacy, oh, you know, India has enough of those. There's also a big debate that was raging, though it hasn't reached the court yet, over a dessert called rasgulai. And that is between two states in India that claim, states, so not restaurants, that both claim to be the um, you, progenerators of this very sweet, sweet syrupy, but quite delicious dessert. So um, the kitchen debates are definitely fiery here. Absolutely. And I'm kind of reminded of the Philly cheesesteak fights over there as well. Lindy Prickett in New Delhi, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show... It is time for the Global Countdown with our senior correspondent and curator of Monocle Radio's music, Fernando Augusto Pacheco Fequin. Eared listeners will know that that is the Brazilian national anthem. We are heading home for you. How long has it been? It's been a while. You know, of course, I know a lot about my country's music, but I want, you know, I like to differentiate of other countries. But it's time to look back, especially because I spent three weeks there. So, of course, I was listening to many of the upcoming tracks, uh, Chris, as well. Well, that's what I was also going to ask you, kind of how much, how much when you are back there, do you listen to the music that is in the charts or do you have kind of other favorites that you wish were in the charts? To be fair, I have no choice to some of those tracks because they were playing everywhere. They were playing parties in supermarkets. Uh, some of them are fun, but I have to say the, the Brazilian music industry is vast. So perhaps some of the music I like is not in the charts. Remember, it's a massive country. It's very actually difficult to be in the top 50. Uh, so perhaps it might not rep represent my taste in Brazilian music but you know I think we're going to have some fun Do you have kind of alternative charts there as well that you like sometimes? There are all sorts of charts and I think there are specific websites if you like electronic music or perhaps even Bossa Nova as well which had a minor resurgence perhaps not in this top five that, we're gonna, that I'm going to show you right now but you know let's see 
Well, let's move on then to the first in the top five. What kind of style of music do we have here? So this is sertanejo, which is the most kind of listened to music genre in Brazil, which is some sort of our version of country music. It started in the 20s, in the, well, when I say 20s, the 1920s, in the countryside of Brazil. But the thing is with sertanejo, now it has like subgenres. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, the song we're going to listen now, it's part of the agronejo, which means... People in the agribusiness, they're very ostentatious. Perhaps it's something you can dance to as well. So it's not your traditional country music, the one I grew up when I was a kid in Brazil. So it's quite interesting to see this kind of uh, changing. Shall we, sh- should I give you a little taster, Chris? Let's have a listen. And number five is Gustavo Lima and Ana Castela with Canudinho. You can dance, it's country you can dance to. It's funny because I think I can compare that to my Austrian sort of folk music, which also yes. used to be much more sort of softer and just traditional folk. And then because of Apreshi and all of that, has gone very dancey, which is very similar to this. Absolutely. And the lyrics are a bit silly. Oh, I wish I was that little straw and satiate my thirst slowly, going round and round in your mouth a little <laughs> wet. Yeah. It's. I, All right. I, I like to show, you know, our international listeners who perhaps don't understand all the lyrics. There. I appreciate that. That's <laughs> that's very good of you, Faye. Let's let's swiftly move on from there to number four. Uh, so number four, uh, this is has some touches of Sertanejo, but I think she's been known the singer as the techno melody uh, type of singer because so uh, the, we have a genre in Brazil called techno brega, which is a very danceable kind of regional rhythm from the Pará in the north of Brazil. Uh, but then techno melody has some elements of that, but it's a little bit more melodic, if I may say. And Chris, there's a funny one here. This song we're going to hear right now, it's actually the Brazilian version for Lorraine's Tattoo, the winning song of Eurovision last year. When I was in Brazil, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I know that beat. What's going on? So she took it from this song. She took it from that song. I mean, it's not a direct translation. It's something they call in the music industry interpolation. So you have the same beat, but with, you know, changing the lyrics here and there. I mean, I'm not sure about the copyright situation about this, but <laughs> let's have a listen. It's a very interesting one. It's Manu Batidão with Daqui Pra Sempre. E olha onde a gente chegou Tudo que a gente conquistou Daqui pra sempre é só eu e tu Calando a boca do mundo E olha onde a gente chegou Tudo que a gente conquistou Daqui pra sempre That's Fascinating. And you know, me as an Eurovision obsessive, to one of the most listened tracks in Brazil is actually a version of the the winning song. So it's all very interesting. I, there. Is there going to be a copyright battle is the one question there that I definitely would have. The other one is just that doesn't sound like techno at all, frankly. Yeah, it's not techno, but uh, I don't know. They, they melodic say techno, techno. Melodic and techno, <laughs> exactly. I mean, Which Brazil, is better because frankly, I hate techno personally. See, so I'll take that. We love inventing names for, for genres, actually. Well, talking about number three, actually, you have to be patient with me because... There's so many artists in this track, but I want to mention all of them. So give me a minute there. (laughs) It's long, okay, guys? So it's DJ GBR, IG, Ryan SP, PH, Davi, uh, Luki, Don Juan, Cadu, GH, Do7, GP, Trap, Lando. 
clearly none of those are get top billing. Is that, oh, is that what you're saying? And the song is called Let's Go For. Shall we have a listen, Chris? Let's go for. I've just been told by our producer, Steph, that that song is 11 minutes long. We're not going to play all of that. But. 11 minutes and 33 seconds. And <laughs> it's fascinating that, you know, in this kind of TikTok age where songs are becoming shorter, this is an epic song. I mean, look at the number of artists as well. Are they all singing? Is that why you had to list them all? So we heard one of the many that you listed there. They're all singing. And in the trap and fun community in Brazil, most tracks are kind of those massive uh, collaborations as well. And again, I was talking about about Agronejo being ostentatious. This song is very ostentatious. It is about that person, perhaps, who grew up in a favela and did well in life. You know, so apparently it's the four, there's four letters that matters to them. Marijuana, women, music, and money. I mean, that's not me saying that's the, the artist. <laughs> that's there. the let's go for right exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. Well, we are obviously going a little bit longer here because this is your home country, Faye, and we have so much information to get through that I know and passion. But let's move on to number two. Number two, that's a very interesting one as well. That's, it's Sertanejo, once again, but it's a version of an 80s track by a singer, Tete Spindola. So, but Lawana Prado, she just released an album kind of celebrating the history of Sertanejo music, but she did covers of songs that are not necessarily Sertanejo. But then, so it's quite quite it's a concept it's a concept there uh, and lawana has an interesting life story which i'll tell after we listen to this track let's hear lawana prado with me leva pra casa escrito nas estrelas saudade And very quickly here about Lawana Prado, you know, she is in the very kind of macho world of Sertanejo music. But besides, of course, being a female artist, she's also a lesbian. Uh, and, and she was saying, you know, I did feel prejudice in this community, but now it's getting better. So it's good to see that in such a genre, which was associated with men, now we have Lawana Prado there. So it's good, good moves there. In, the in, in a music. traditional genre, and that was definitely a more traditional folky song, I would say, from that genre, I assume. Exactly. Let's move on to number one in the Brazilian charts. We have a very romantic, well, romantic, more or less, it's about as a breakup song. You didn't know how to love me and you lost me, but my body still wants you. Well, that's just the translation of the song we're going to hear right now by Luan Santana and Ana Castela, number one, with Deja Vu. Luan, é você quem tem que ouvir. É fácil pra você falar isso agora, mas deixa eu refrescar sua memória. Nunca se esqueça o motivo do fim. Eu não saí da sua vida porque quis. Você que não soube me amar e perdeu. Você não tem coração e quer cuidar do meu. That's more of the rock ballad style, I would say. Is that common in Brazil? It is quite common. And and she says, you don't have a heart. How come you want to care for my heart? She's right. 
you know? <laughs> Go in a Castella. But yeah, Brazilians love breakup songs. I think more than, than usual. I mean, there's always some cheating involved in the tracks as well. But, you know, it's the country, it's the charts of my country, Chris. Doesn't, doesn't every country love a breakup song? Exactly. Though, to be fair. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for taking us through Brazil. And that's all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing, produced by Lillian Fawcett and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager was Steph Changu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.